Paul's on his way, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna fill in until he he gets back. But um, yeah, as I said, we're in a series on repentance. Repentance is one of the key foundations of this church. By repentance, we don't just mean uh, saying sorry for something, but we mean a, a wholehearted change of belief, opinion, and behaviour, so that life looks completely different to the way it did it before. A complete turning around and walking in the other direction. So today, Paul's going to be speaking on. F- on fear to peace. There'll be an opportunity for him to pray for us when he's here. So I think I can hear the, uh, the, the hand dryer. So the time is coming. Paul, welcome. Should we pray for Paul? And then we'll hand over to him. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is uh, deeply active in him. Thank you that he wields uh, the, the word of God and wields it as it is meant to be wielded, as a, as a double-edged sword that is sharp, that is incisive, that brings breakthrough and transformation. So we bless him in the name of Jesus. We open our ears. We say, Spirit, open our ears, open our hearts as we read this scripture and hear him speak. Amen. Thanks, Andy. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Excellent. That was a good response. At least from this side, it was good. Um, uh, we're looking, uh, carrying on... Um, the series on repentance. We're in Luke 10. Um, so I, I want to read this passage and set up a bit of context and, uh, and then hopefully put the ball in the back of the net, you know, as it, as it were. So, um, two weeks ago, we had uh, a first message in the series from Alice, which was on uh, a repentance, a change of mind, a transformation of the mind from kind of being a, being a armchair critic into being a contributor um, and to actively participating. And then last week we had uh, Chris gave us the uh, talk on generosity, uh, turn of the heart towards generosity. And then this week we're going from fear into peace or from anxiety into peace. Um, And I don't know if it was deliberate, but this does follow the structure of Luke chapter 10. In fact, uh, it's the same kind of sequence of events. Um, so we're actually at the end of Luke 10, with Jesus and Mary and Martha. But just put it, to put out a bit of context, right at the beginning of Luke 10, it's when Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. So he, he sends them out um, to, to go and, on, on this mission, go and heal the sick, raise the dead, uh, cleanse the leper. And, you know, the, it, it, it's that movement into being active participators and contributors. Um, in between is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which... Uh, I, I think it's fair to say it's about a, a, a generosity of spirit, especially towards those who are not like you, or who are, um, you know, ostensibly enemies. Uh, and then we get the end of the end of Luke chapter. It's a really small story, but I, for me, it's one of the most significant stories in the whole of the New Testament. And that's what I want to unpack uh, for us today. And just to say, after Luke 10, it gets into Luke 11, which is when we get the Lord's Prayer. So there's, there's a sequence. For me, when I'm reading the Scripture, I'm, I'm always trying to think about what's the sequence. What, where does this idea come in relation to what came before and what came afterwards? We're often used to thinking, looking at things in quite a granular way. We just pick a, pick a verse or a story and kind of land on that and really focus in close. But actually, most of the time, we can't really grasp what's going on unless we we understand its context. It's a little bit like with a piece of music. If you just uh, took five seconds of a piece of music and 
listen to it on its own. You could focus in on it, you could analyze it, you could, you could get something out of it, but you'll never understand what those five seconds of the piece of music mean unless you hear it in the context of the whole, the whole piece. Because what's happened before changes the nature of what that five seconds means, and what happens after changes the nature of it. Musically inclined, we've got a lot of musicians in the church. You're musically inclined enough to kind of get get that point right. The, the scripture is like that. It's it's more like music or a dance, where just looking at one snapshot on its own, it's going to tell you something. But we have to understand the movement, the dynamic. There's a dynamic here. So in in the presentation of these stories, there's a dynamic that moves from this Jesus sending out the seventy-two to the story of the Good Samaritan to this story about Mary and Martha and Jesus, and then moving on into the Lord's Prayer. So keep, keeping that in mind, I found that's a really helpful, it's, it's a helpful thing to keep in mind when reading the Bible. Actually, when I saw that, it unlocked an awful lot of the Scripture to me that I, it gave me a totally different perspective. Um, so anyway, you can have that one for free. Um, so I, I, I want to read the story. It's short, so it won't take long. Um, I want to, to, to be honest, for days I've had a whole bunch of things bubbling around for me about this, this passage. Um, and I feel like it's important. Um, and my prayer, and Grace and I were, were praying, and our prayer for the church, and it has been my prayer for us as a church, is that we would, we would kind of go over a bit of a threshold in terms of our enjoyment of and our sharing of the life of the Spirit that, that is ours in Christ, that we would kind of cross over in a way that would mean we can't go back. It's like we, we would tip over a threshold into something. Um, and that's my prayer for this morning. And I, I, I believe that's going to happen. Uh, or, or maybe it's going to happen a bit, you know, maybe for some of us. And, you know, we, we're going to keep, I'm going to keep preaching the same message ultimately <laughs> until we get there. I only really preach one message. If you hadn't, for those of you who've heard me preach a few times, you maybe have clocked that one. Actually, Alice, Alice um, Bond said to me, and she goes, oh, I, I like you, when you preach, you're really just preaching one thing over and over. It's like, yeah, this, that's true. I am. Um, that's, that's deliberate. Um, so I'm, I'm preaching the same message uh, today. Um, and my prayer is that, that it tips us over into just something, something beautiful and awesome that transfigures us. It's transfiguration. Um, metanoia, repentance, is about cha- a change of mind. But there's another meta word in the Greek. That's metamorphosis. And that's the word we translate as transfiguration. It's the same word, Latin or Greek. Metamorphosis is the, 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 uh, the, the Greek. Transfiguration is the, the, the Latin. So we've got metanoia and metamorphosis. It's a, a change of mind, but there's a transfiguration. And, and this is the word that's used when Jesus goes up the mountain with um, Peter, James, and John. And it says he's transfigured into, into glory. Um, and that transfiguration is, according to the New Testament, that, that's what our salvation is about, actually. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us we are being transfigured. So that same transfiguration, that, that's Jesus's, is, is ours as well. So my prayer is we have some transfiguration today. Um, amen. We agree. Um, so here's the story. Uh, it's Luke 10, verse 38. If you're in the, these Bibles and you want to look... Um, it's page 793. Do you know, um, I've got back into books, like, I mean, physical books, physical Bibles. I've got all the Bibles in my phone. I like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty addicted to the phone, to be honest. You can pray for me for deliverance. Um, but uh, 
I'm pretty addicted to it because I could just get access to all this information. Anytime I want to think of something or find something out, I can just look it up, and it's really good. Um, but, you know, it's powerful, and uh, maybe, maybe we could get delivered from phone addiction. But I've got back to, I've got back to the book, the, the, the Bible as a physical book, something physical. I think there's something in this moment in time where we've been in this sort of virtual world for the last couple of years where perhaps the Holy Spirit is inviting us to be reacquainted with being grounded in our physical reality. And perhaps that's something for someone. Anyway, it certainly is for me. But page 793, if you're in the green cover, New Living Bibles, Jesus visits Martha and Mary. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. I I always remember this as... um, Martha, you were worried and concerned about a great many things. Uh, Mary has chosen the better part, and it won't be uh, taken from her. That's how I, how I first read it. It's probably the old NIV. Um, just a bit of context. I, I kind of would have liked, in some ways, to put some chairs out and use some visual aids. Um, but I thought for the live stream that probably wasn't going to work, um, and I didn't wanna, want it to be too distracting. Um, so kind of maybe just imagine some, some chairs with me. Um, What's the story here? So there's this family, two sisters, Mary and Martha. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that there's a third member of the family. That's Lazarus. That's the brother. And we don't get a lot of detail about them, but they are important in the, in the Scripture. They come up a, a, a few times. But from my reading of their story, I feel like you can kind of infer a few things about who they are, at least fill in some of the blanks about their story. So... It's three siblings, and they're living in a house. Uh, they must be reasonably wealthy because they're able to live in a house, and they're all deciding to live there. They don't appear to be married, uh, any of them. Certainly nothing's ever said about their, their spouses. They're wealthy enough to have a fancy tomb because when Lazarus dies, he goes into a fancy tomb, and you know Jesus raises him from the dead. Um, Martha seems to be the, the head of the family. She's probably the oldest in, in that in that context, you know, in that society at that time. We don't know how old they are, but they're, they're probably young by our context. You know, people died earlier in those days. Um, they had to become adults uh, quicker. So I don't know. Maybe you want to imagine Martha's 20, 20-something, perhaps her younger sister Mary, maybe mid-teens, maybe Lazarus is the youngest. I kind of get that impression. I, I, I don't know. He's not mentioned here as being a significant person. He's mentioned elsewhere when Jesus raises him from the dead. But th- this is a, it's a, young, a young family of siblings. What are they, what are they doing there? I, I could imagine maybe it's wealthy parents who've passed away. So they're orphaned. They've got an inheritance. They've got land. Um, they've, got, they've got enough money that they're able to be stable. They don't have enough money for servants. So they're wealthy, but they're not extraordinarily wealthy. They're not wealthy to the point where they, they don't have to think about um, money. And you kind of get the impression here in this story that Martha's the one who's taking care of business in the house, and maybe the other siblings, they're not really taking care of business, maybe because they're 
too young, or for whatever reason, Martha stepped up into the parental figure, and she has got all these concerns about looking after the household, you know, what's the future going to be? I can kind of imagine it's a situation where she's aware of what's in the bank account, so to speak, and she's also aware of the fact that there isn't anything else coming into the bank account. So she, she notices that every day the numbers are ticking down a little bit more. And because she's looking at those numbers, she can forecast, well, how long is it going to take before those numbers run out? We've got, we've got my sister Mary, my brother Lazarus. They haven't really got a clue about this thing. They're sort of blissfully unaware. And here I am carrying the burden of the whole family uh, on my shoulders, looking after the household, you know, being, being a woman, a single woman in a patriarchal society that didn't regard women very highly, you know, very uh, difficult circumstances, at least looking at things that were coming down the road for them. Not easy circumstances, although they're not out on the street, you know, so they're not in the worst situation, but actually Martha is aware that there's no guarantee that perhaps a few years down the line something might happen and they are out on the street or, or worse. So I, I think this is this kind of a story, although we're 2,000 years removed from it, there's a lot of themes and threads within this, the story of this family that I think we can, we can perhaps relate to in various ways in our lives. We can connect with the sense of anxiety around uh, family, around social circumstances, around uh, politics, economy, um, around money. All of this stuff is there um, in just a few of these verses. It's all behind the scenes. And I think that for the first century hearers or readers of this scripture, that would perhaps be more obvious because they would have immediately been able to pick up the cues. It doesn't need to be explicitly stated because people get it. It's like, oh, yeah, I I know what you're talking about. I can imagine exactly the family you're talking about because I know an example like that. I know people like that, or I am someone like that. So just a a few verses. And Jesus and his disciples come in, and immediately Martha has a sense of duty around hospitality. It's like, that's what you do. Guests come around, you're hospitable towards them. So hospitality means, well, we've got to prepare food. So we've got food, we've got stuff in the stores, so I, I need to get my best out. And of course, this is Jesus as well. We've heard of Jesus. He's pretty impressive. Some people say he's the Messiah, you know. Uh, honoring, honoring these guests is something that we do, but also we're honoring God. So it's an act of worship as well. And Martha is fully invested in this, and she's, she's putting all of her energy and effort into catering for the fact that Jesus and his entourage have, uh, have turned up uninvited at their house. Well, she receives them in, you know, but um, suddenly they're there. So on the one hand, it's a really good thing, but on the other hand, it's something that's kind of stressful as well for Martha. Like, both things are running together. It's really good that Jesus has turned up, but actually, there are some things that come with that that are really stressful for her. So she's busy doing all of these preparations, and meanwhile, her younger sister Mary is just kind of hanging out with Jesus, and you get the, um, the, the it says here she's sitting at his feet listening to him. I, I, if you can imagine two chairs, <laughs> two chairs face to face, you've got Jesus and Mary, they're there, and we're not told what they're talking about, actually, which I think is significant, and I'll, I'll explain why in a minute, but it just says she's listening to him, she's communing with him, she's fellowshipping with him, and she's face to face with him. And Martha notices this, and she reads what's happening through the lens of her, her own anxiety and her own frustration. So when she says to Jesus, don't you care that my sister's doing nothing to help me? I think it's not just about that moment in time. I think this is, this is something that's spilling over. It's spilling out of her, her world, of her inner world. This is how she's felt for a long time. 
Like, I'm alone in having to deal with these problems for the family. And Jesus, don't you care? It's like, now you've turned up, you're actually endorsing this situation. By indulging my sister, you're not doing anything to correct it. You're not doing anything to rebalance the burden of responsibility in this house. Mary needs to grow up. She needs to step up. She needs to play her part in helping this family. Surely, Jesus, you can see that and you can kind of make a difference. You can persuade her. She just doesn't seem to get it. I ask her to do something. She doesn't do anything. She's like she's in her own world. Make sense? It's, it's, kind of, it's, it's something spilling out of her. And, you know, Jesus isn't, isn't angry with it. It's, he says, you know, Martha, you... You know, how, how it puts it here in the, in, the, um, in the New Living. My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. You're worried and concerned about many things. It's not just these details. It's many things that are going on. There's this, behind you, there's this invisible uh, train of baggage, all these worries and concerns that you have. You're worried about all of these things, not just preparing the food, but you're worried about all these other things too. And he says... But only one thing is needed. In New Living, there's only one thing worth uh, being concerned about. Um, only one thing is needed is, is what he says, which is a little more cryptic. New Living tries to interpret it a little bit more for us, which is fine. But Jesus is actually a little bit more cryptic because if you notice, he doesn't actually tell you what the one thing is. He doesn't say only one thing is needed. Let me tell you, this is the one thing. Um, he says, Mary's chosen the better part and it won't be taken from her. So you kind of assume that the one thing he's talking about is something to do with what Mary's doing, but he doesn't make it explicit. And this was something I wrestled with a little bit this week, I have to say. I've taught on this passage a lot, but this week it, it struck me again that the fact that this, this story does not make explicit what the one thing is. And yet here I am asked to come up and teach on a Sunday morning and kind of exposit this and make it explicit um, in a way that the Bible actually refuses to do. And I think that for that reason, I've kind of got a bit of uh, ambivalence or, you know, a bit of apprehension about trying to unpack too much from this and trying, trying to put it into a neat category. Because I don't think that it's put into a neat category. I think it's, I think it's like pulling the pin out of a grenade, throwing it into a room and closing the door and walking away. I think that's what this is. And sometimes what we're trying to do with the Bible is, is go in and tidy all of that up and say, oh, yeah, of course, well, this piece goes there, that piece goes there. And it's like, Jesus threw the grenade in there. Why are you trying to put the pieces back together? He blew something up. Why are you trying to rebuild it? There's, this is a theme, actually. You know, Paul says things like, if I, if I try and rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I'm a lawbreaker. Interesting statement. Um, or Jesus saying, you know, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it. Like, so if you're, if you're tearing it down, I'll rebuild it. But if I'm going to tear something down, why are you trying to rebuild it? I think tr Jesus is trying to mess you up, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. He, he, he does this a lot. He really tries to mess you up. Uh, people come with these linear questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what do I need to do, says Nicodemus. And Jesus is like, oh, try getting born again. And, and we religiousify that into, oh, pray the sinner's prayer, these things. But think about it in his context. He just told the guy, well, you want something you can do. Let me give you something you can do. Go, go and get yourself reborn. Go and get born again. Like literally, go and, go and get be birthed again. 
we sort of spiritualize it, fair enough. But actually, in the context, he's blowing Nicodemus up. This guy's turning, he's saying, look, I've got all these ducks in a row, but I know I'm missing something. Can you tell me what I need to do? And he's like, fly to the moon? How, how about you, you, yeah, go and dive at the bottom of the Dead Sea, swim to the bottom of there, stay there for five days, hold your breath underwater. Try that. Like what Jesus says to Nicodemus is as ridiculous as that. But we've got 2,000 years of religious history that's kind of sanitized it into something that doesn't sound as ridiculous as it really is. Jesus is ridiculous. He, he is constantly blowing up and de- detonating things that then our kind of religious tendencies you know, go towards, oh, well, yeah, let's, let's make that nice and neat and, and simple. Um, and I think when we do that, we actually miss what the Word of God's trying to do. The Word of God is seriously trying to blow us up. Like, that's why Paul says things like, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You can't process that through a religious lens, like, if you really take it seriously. Um, I don't think any of us really believe the Bible, do you know what I mean? I don't think I really believe it. There are these things that are so, um, they're so intense, they're so intensely hot in the grace and the love of God. It's like, well, I can't really wrap my head around that. I don't, can't really say that I believe it. I, it's working on me. I'm kind of getting somewhere with it, but I, I haven't really apprehended anything. I've not apprehended the message. Maybe the message has apprehended me, but I, don't, I haven't really figured that out yet, um, which is why I, I, I like the statement that the only thing really more important than knowing God is being known by God. Actually, that's that's the the scripture, now that you have come to know God, or rather, Paul says, let me correct what I just said, rather you've become known by God. He puts it another way, the one who thinks he knows something doesn't yet know as he ought to know, but the one who loves God is known by God. That's another time this phrase comes up. So there's this constant, like, Jesus is constantly trying to spin everybody on their heads, knock them upside down, and blow things up. It's like a you know, kind of um, holy anarchist, just trashing things wherever he goes. Trashing structures and preconceptions, trashing what is rational and expected and reasonable. Like God is not a reasonable person, right? That's why, Andy, I hate the word balance. You know that, right? You heard me say I hate the word balance. Christians love talking about balance. It's like the Christian word that does not exist anywhere in the Bible, right? It's the least Christian Christian word, is the word balance. Christians love it. Like, we must have a balance. It's like, last I checked, God is not a balanced individual. Like, the the cross is not the actions of a balanced and considered individual. The cross is an extreme act. That's the act of an extremist, not a balanced individual. I, I think balance is often an excuse that we use that's saying, well, we can't really wrap our heads around what Jesus is saying, so we're going to kind of sanitize it a little bit, and we'll say, oh yeah, well, it's, it's, all, it's all a balance. Like, Nicodemus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You, well, you need a good balance, Nicodemus. You know, you need a good balance of learning the law, and you need a good balance of paying your tithes. You need a good balance of, like, being you know, good in your family and being reasonably together, and a good balance of prayer life. You know, you need a good rhythm. Probably recommend, you know, a good fit, at least 15 minutes a day, but if you want to kind of, like, really go somewhere, go for half hour a day, um, you know, here's these resources, like, good, get a good balanced diet of these things. Like, he could have said something like that. He doesn't like, mm, yeah, how about you teleport yourself to the center of the earth? <laughs> Go reverse your age so that you're just an embryo and get born again. Do that. 
This is not the statements of a balanced individual. And this is C.S. Lewis's point in Mere Christianity. It's like Jesus is not a balanced individual. He's not, he's not just a good person coming and giving us instructions as to how we can improve our lives. Like it, either he's God blowing everything up or he's a total nutter um, or, or he's both, which I'm happy with as well. I mean, that's perfectly fine for me. Um, you know, uh, what, what we consider to be orderly and what God considers to be orderly, I think, are quite different things. So, you know, I, I need a repentance, kind of an upgrade in my thinking sometimes. Um, but just look at the situation here. Who of us would not side with Martha? Honestly, who of, who of us would not side with Martha? And, and surely we would expect Jesus to endorse our siding with us. Like Martha's being totally reasonable. She's doing what she should do. She's really being the responsible one. You know, um, she's investing her time and her energies in looking after the family, doing all these good things that need to be done. And Jesus doesn't say they're not good, and he doesn't say that they, they, they're not important in one sense. But we would all side with Martha, I think, honestly. If we were really brought face-to-face -face with it, we'd be like, yeah, do you know what? Um, Jesus, you, you kind of need to tone it down a little bit. Mary needs a bit more balance in her life. Maybe you want to balance, but Mary, be a little bit more like your sister Martha. Martha, perhaps you could just be a little more like Mary. Mary, perhaps you could be a little bit more like Martha. Let's kind of just balance this out, like have a nice little round table, you know, powwow about how we sort out the issues in this family. Like a little bit of compromise, you know, compromise, like good relationships are built on compromise and communication, you know, so let's sort this out, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, well, he's not here at the minute, but um, like Jesus could have said all of that in, you know, the first century equivalent. He could have done that, but he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. And that's important because that's what the reasonable, rational, balanced individual would do. That's what the smart, wise considered, yeah, let, let me give you a good program for how you can sort things out in this family. Let me get, let, get a good budget in place. Perhaps we could talk about that, how you might kind of work on this here and work on that there. Not bad things, right? But none of them are what Jesus does. He says... Only one thing is needed. Now, what is the one thing? <laughs> what is this one thing? I think we need to know. Because if Jesus is telling us only one thing is needed, then that means two things aren't needed. Three things aren't needed. Four things it, it, I don't know if you recall this sort of thing. I, I remember, you know, when I was a young Christian, I used to hear people say things like this. They would kind of create this hierarchy of priorities in your spiritual life. They said, well, of course, God's got to come first, and then your family's got to come next, and then, or maybe the church. It depends which church you're in. Like, um, then, you know, there's your job or, or you know, um, whatever. You've got, your you've got your hierarchy of priorities. So put God first, and then do this second and this third and what have you. Um, sorry, Jesus doesn't teach that. He says only one thing. Stop, stop drawing your, your hierarchy list. The problem is if you've got anything in position two, you don't actually have anything in position according to Jesus. If there's anything in position two or position three, what you've done is you've set up something that is divorced from... Right? If, God, if God is position one and something different is position two, then those two things are separate. But there's a separation between them. It's like, well, suddenly, there's a, is there a conflict between me loving God and loving my family if family comes second? Okay, God, I've got to put God first, and I've got to put family second. Well, suddenly, you've put family and God at conflict, in conflict with one another. 
This is a problem, huge, huge problem in uh, our kind of conceptualizations of the Christian life. When Jesus tells us there's only one thing. And by the way, this one thing answers Martha's problem. Because Martha's problem is, it's not even so much the activities. The activities are, are, are fine. It's not wrong to host people. It's not wrong to make good decisions with your finance and all, all of these things. None of that's wrong. It, it's good. But the problem for Martha, I would like to suggest, is that she was so powered by her own anxieties and fears that she was creating, she was uh, projecting a manner of life that was divorced from the one thing. It was disconnected. It's like, I have to do all of these things because I'm pressured from fears and anxieties and real concerns that are outside of myself, that I don't have control over. I'm pressurized to act. And the actions are not bad actions. This is the key thing. She's not doing something bad. But the thing that is powering her actions is that it's an anxiety and fear-driven way of being. This is the thing that is generating all of her good action. And I would like to suggest that if you master the techniques of fear and manipulation, you can get people to be really good Christians. It's very, very easy. Fear and manipulation, you just need to come along and say, look, mm, you're not really there yet. Let me give you a good system and formula for how you can get there. Let me set the ladder up for you to climb, because I'm a bit higher up the ladder than you, so I can tell you how to, how to do it. Like, this rung and this rung and this rung, this is how you get there. And the truth of the matter is, I've met very, very few people who've been able to climb the ladder. Usually, they get up a few rungs and then fall down over and over again, and it's like this kind of boom and bust situation. Um, the real dangerous ones are the ones who can climb the ladder, by the way. Those are the ones you need to watch out for, because the ones who, or at least think they can climb the ladder and who think they've got up to the top of the ladder, they're the ones who ha have not yet seen with the eye of humility that they're in the same boat as everyone else, and they're the ones who will manipulate and who will push and who will build structures that abuse and destroy and, you know, come crashing down um, all around them. And God knows we have enough stories like that, don't we, in the, in the family conversation uh, over the last few years, right? Um, so be afraid of the ones who actually think they can climb the ladder. Jesus is into the business of tearing the ladders down because he brings all of us to ground zero. And here, ground zero is Mary and Jesus face to face. What is it that he is supplying at that moment in time that is the answer both to Mary and to Martha? Because the thing is, I think all of us are Mary and Martha at the same time in different ways. I think these two, they, they're real people, but they also symbolize something. They symbolize the, the conflicted disintegration of our inner world where we're pulled with conflicting motivations and like sometimes like, oh, wow, yeah, I really got it. That, there's the peace of God. There's the love of God. I'm kind of there. And then you're pulled over here by something else and pulled over here by, by something else. And we're, we're sort of in this fractured existence trying to gather up all these pieces and make them into something. And 
it, Jesus is the only one who can do that, right? And sometimes he needs to blow them apart a little bit more first. He needs to grenade them sometimes um, before they can actually go back together properly. Because we have a habit of kind of putting the cart before the horse, uh, to mix a metaphor. We, we kind of glue the, um, the exhaust onto the roof, and we think we've got a working car, you know. And he's like, I need to kind of blow this apart a little bit. I believe we're in a... Um, I believe we in the West, the Western church, are in a particular moment in time that's characterized by a few things. And I don't think it's a very long period of time, but we're in it, and we've been in it for a little while. And one of the things I believe that characterizes this time we're in is the the earthquake has split the tectonic plates to the point where the foundations of the building are exposed. The earthquake has shifted the tectonic plates, so shifted the earth to the point where the foundations are exposed. And the thing is, when the foundations are exposed, it gives an opportunity to heal something in the foundation. And we've had stuff in the foundations of our Christian imagination and our Western society that has been discipled by that Christian imagination. We've had stuff in the foundations that actually has created toxic outcomes, destructive outcomes. And those foundations are exposed with an opportunity now for them to be healed. I think that's what God is doing right now. He's healing these foundations. And that crops up in many ways. But I think what Jesus is doing with Mary is also healing a foundation here, with with Mary and Martha. There's a healing of a foundation. I think part of our separation mentality where we uh, we divide life up into these different categories and, and different things and compete, cause them to compete against one another, that, that this is one of the things that Jesus is healing. He's trying to reintegrate us where we have fractured and split apart, not just as individuals, but as communities as, uh, and as societies and in our whole imagination about the way the world works. This is, this is what he's doing. This is the Holy Trinity bringing their holy life and holy way of being right into the foundations of the Western world, of the Western mind. I actually think, and I'm, I'm landing the plane, um, I, I think and I believe that Right now, th- things are pretty stressful, right, in the world. I prophesied about this last week. You know, for those of you who are here, I, it, was, it was on my mind. And again, I'm conscious of it, that there are, there are lots of things to be stressed about, um, perhaps more than for a while, maybe not necessarily more than ever, but perhaps more than for a while. Lots, lots of things to be stressed about. Lots of reasons to get drawn into anxiety and fear. Lots of good, rational reasons. Um, Whatever it is, I, I, you know, I, I, I use too much plastic this week or whatever it might be. I don't know. You can fill in the blanks, right? Whatever it means for you. There's many, many things, many reasons to, to uh, get anxious. And I, I think God is preparing us because I, I, I have the feeling that it might get a little worse, honestly. Um, and I, I don't like to be the, the kind of prophet that just says good things and pretends like peace, peace when there is no peace, right? I, um, I think, I think there's, things could get a little bit worse before they get better. But in that is an invitation 
Jesus says, look, in this world you'll get trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Like, I've already overcome all this. I already defeated it, actually. It's thrashing around like it means something, but it's already defeated. So, I, he's like, I, I want to reconnect you with this reality so that you're free from fear and free from anxiety. It actually says in the New Testament, I, I, I want you to not be concerned about anything. I want you to not be concerned about anything. That's what God says to you. I want you to be not concerned about anything. That's what Jesus is saying to Martha in this, um, in this passage. But how, Jesus, how do we not get concerned about anything? What, it is, what is it that you supply that actually solves our problem? Because we've done the Christian thing, and it's kind of been all right, and there's been good things to it, but it hasn't really solved the problem because we've, we're still dealing with the same issues. And even if it's solved it for us to an extent, it hasn't solved the problem of the, the world around us. You know, there, there are many concerning and worrying things. I, I'm, you know, in, in the New Testament, there's a prophet called Agabus, you know, and he gets up and he says, listen, there's a drought or a famine, one of those, either way, something's coming that's going to mess up the food chain. And the church listened to him, and so the church like, okay, how do we respond to that so that we can actually um, be in a place to mitigate the temporary disaster that's going to cause a lot of problems to people's lives? How can we act in a way that's going to look after those people as well as looking after our communities? You know, how, how do we deploy that wisdom to actually make a difference? Like, th that's good. You know, I, I'm, I'm totally in favor of that way of thinking. But if, if we're acting powered by this anxiety, then in this story, well, Jesus isn't actually siding with those actions in that sense, right? He, he's trying to blow them up because he's trying to bring us back to a Mary position. We've got too sucked into the Martha mentality, our own Messiah complex, thinking that we're the ones who can contribute the thing that's going to solve the problems. You know, we think we can do it. That's back to, well, we think we can climb the mountain and get to the top, and then we can pull a bunch of people up too if we're, if we're feeling benevolent, you know, so, he puts it another way, which of your anxiety-driven actions can add a single inch to your height or a single hour to your life? Which of your anxiety-driven actions can add a single hour to your life? Can you even extend your life by one hour by acting powered by fear and anxiety? The implication is no, you can't. All you can do is perpetuate the illusion of control. All we can do is have this thing of like, well, I feel like I'm in control. And of course, the truth is you're not in control at all because a meteorite could fall out of the sky and flatten your house tomorrow. Like, I mean, you try and control that one. Like this literally, no, we, we, we've enjoyed relatively stable, relatively stable society, and that's been the grace of God as well. Um, but we're, we're used to feeling like we have the illusion of control, whereas there are many people in the world who have no illusion of control. Um, and because they're like, well, there's literally nothing we can do to solve this. We, we know that. So, um, so actually, you know, it's kind of Jesus or nothing, you know, in, in, in that situation. Um, and, I, and I'm not of the view that we should be so foolish as to pray that we're in that situation. Um, but, you know, we, we are all, we've all been enculturated with the expectation that stuff works. You know, that the, um, the, the, the water comes out the tap when you turn it on. And that the, uh, you know, that the traffic lights work and people don't just kind of crash into each other or, or whatever it is. We've got situations where all these structures are being shaken in one way or another. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think we're about to, like, turn into a third world country. Um, but I think that there are challenges that are being presented, right? Is, is this being real enough on a Sunday morning? And there's an invitation where Jesus is like, listen, I've already overcome all of that. 
Um, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to see it yet, but I'm going to show you. And my prayer for us as a church is that we as a community would be so full of this reality that we would be able to help one another along with it, and we would have an overflow that's able to help others along who aren't part of our community, that we would actually be able to share that. We'd be able to, you know, as, as a friend of mine puts it, he said, you know, I wish we could just put a sign up in front of the door uh, or, or on top of the door of every church saying, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have absolutely no idea what that means or how it works, but if you want to find out with us, like, you're welcome. <laughs> like, I like that. You know, I believe that. And, uh, and I feel like that in terms of we, we have been given an, an invitation to, to be liberated from the bondage of fear. That's, that's the invitation. And Mary is experiencing something where Jesus is saying, look, it's just the one thing. What does the Bible say happens when we see Jesus? It says, whenever we see him, we become like him. That's transfiguration. So Mary's seeing him. He's see, she's seeing him at that moment. Not, not talking physically, seeing him with her physical eyes. Lots of people physically saw Jesus and weren't necessarily changed. Or maybe not in that moment. Maybe later on they were when it had time to work on them or something. I don't know. But, but she, the, the point is, she's face to face with him. This is transfiguration that's happening here. Now, how does that transfiguration work? And this is really my, my punchline. And those of you who um, were here for my talk on, on the Trinity, uh, you know, a little while ago, I put the, put the three chairs up. I kind of wanted to go back to that to sort of build on it in this case. Uh, but as I said, for various reasons, I, I didn't use the visual aids. But you imagine we, we've, got these, we've got these three chairs. The Bible says in John 1 at the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. So the face-to-faceness of Jesus and the Father, the, the communion between Jesus and the Father in the Holy Spirit, this, according to the Apostle John, is the very womb out of which the whole of creation was formed. Jesus is face-to-faceness with the Father. Jesus goes on to say, no one knows the Father except me and anyone I choose to reveal him to. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Like, there's, there's a closed loop in one sense in the Trinity that says there's no way we can climb our way up into the Trinity. We can't deduce what it's like to be in the Trinity. We can't work it out philosophically, or we can't pray our way into it. It can only be where Jesus says, look, I, 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 I choose to reveal to you. And actually, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit takes what is Jesus's and makes it known to us. So in this image, you've got... Jesus is face-to-face with Mary, but he's also face-to-face with the Father, because he's never not face-to-face with the Father. Would you agree? Jesus is never not face-to-face with the Father. There there is no division between him. He says the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. He can only speak what he hears. So Jesus is revealing to us something about what life is like for him. Saying, look, what is life like for me? I've got this constant communion, inward communion with the Father, which means I'm face to face with Him, and I'm hearing His voice, and everything I do is just echoing and participating with Him in that. This is the way of Jesus' being. 
And now he says the Spirit is taking this reality that is mine and making it known to you. Not known in an intellectual way, but known in the heart revelatory way that transforms us, that transfigures us. This is what Mary is experiencing with Jesus at that moment. He is imparting and transmitting to her what it is that he has, what it is that he is. And what he has and what he, what he has is eternal oneness with the Father and the Spirit. What he is, is the very Word of God, the very bread of life. He's imparting her, that to her in the moment. And, and this is the difference. Martha was doing good things, but she hadn't quite seen what is it that Jesus is, what is the solution that Jesus has come to provide. His solution is not, let's get you a better program, let's get you better organized in your life so you can do more good things. As good as it is to have that, that's not Jesus' solution. Jesus' solution is, I give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. This isn't rational or reasonable. It's not balance, right? It's not balanced. It's seriously unhinged. That's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him, because he's unhinged. The foolishness of God, the unhingedness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, says the Scripture. So, how do we access it? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with this thought. You probably heard, heard me say it before, and I'm going to pray, and it, it's a little past 12, so, um, you know, we're going to land it. But my, my prayer, and as I said, is that it, it's shifting us over a threshold. And Father, my prayer is that the center of gravity for us as a community changes, that these truths and these realities are not just things that we enjoy dabbling in, but, but we, we just jump in, that we, we go fully immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we allow ourselves to be fully immersed and, and not to just stay in the shallows on this. Would you shift us, Holy Spirit? Only you can do it. Here's a very powerful way for me. Um, you can ask the Holy Spirit or think about, you know, Holy Spirit, what is it that Jesus feels right now when seated face to face with the Father? He hears Father God say to him, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Or Jesus, what is it you feel? Or if you think about it, what is it that Jesus feels right now when he's seated face to face with the Father, hearing, you are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased? What does he feel? Because the New Testament calls that assurance. In the Greek, parhesia, it's this is assurance. This is the confidence that the apostles had. Where was that confidence coming from? Well, it was the flow that Jesus had with the Father. What does he feel? Does Jesus feel anxious? Does Jesus feel burdened? Does he feel stressed out? Does he feel worried that he might fall out of his chair? Intellectually, we can say, yeah, we get that Je Jesus, we, can, we know he doesn't feel that. How do we access it? Listen, we don't access it, it accesses us. We say, Holy Spirit, we need, we need you. We need you to just do this in us. We need you to reveal this in us. We don't claim any competence for ourselves. We need you to make this real. You said you would take from what is Jesus's and make it known to us. So Holy Spirit, we stop. 
we hit the stop button because we've been running on a treadmill and you, like Martha doing lots of good things and things that in one sense need to be done but you are trying to get us to stop you're trying to ground us long enough so that this message actually does its work in us so that a transformation a repentance a metanoia actually happens in our hearts so that we've crossed over into something and we can't go back so, Holy Spirit, you just join with me, and if, you, if you're watching on the live stream, maybe, you know, if you, you want to respond in some way, um, I, I, I like to put my hand on my heart, because I'm like, well, Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes out from there. I don't really know what that means, but that just helps me to connect with it. So, you know, um, Holy Spirit, I give you permission. <laughs> I give you permission. I stop resisting. I, I choose the better part. I have that invitation to choose the better part and to know that beautiful, perfect assurance that Jesus knows. Would you do it in me? <laughs> I stop trying to make it my responsibility to make it happen. You know, own this prayer for yourself just in these last few moments or, you, or whatever words you care to use for it. Jesus, I know that's not necessarily the case that we do a meeting like this and then suddenly everything is, you know, it, it's all sorted out. But I pray that this seed would be so embedded in the good soil of our hearts that it would continue to grow and grow and grow and continue to manifest that fruit of your assurance, how you feel, how you see things. Would you give us eyes to see? And would you position us in such a way that we really can make a significant difference to those around us and, and to the world around us that's in such need? Would you make us people who are useful to do that because we're not actually trying to be anything. We are allowing you to be in us. And I bless us with peace today. Peace. May the God of peace give you peace at all times and in every way. Amen. Let's thank Paul. It is uh, time to pick up a kid. If you have children, please don't forget them. Um, do go get them now. Thank you for being with us. Do grab Paul if you want to ask him any questions or pray with him. Catch up with those around you, but great to be with you. Kids will come back, but if you're in the crypt, then do grab cryptas.